0: So we know calling food good and bad isn't good because it's a very short leap from saying the food is bad to I'm bad for eating it. And that is what is happening. Having your self-esteem take a hit for eating a cookie.
1: Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders. To those of us who have been around for a while,
2: I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor.
1: And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of
3: myself
2: as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always
1: ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around
2: the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome back to the Seasoned Artie Podcast. It's been a while, the, or welcome to the Seasoned Artie Podcast if you haven't been a listener. We're coming back with a specific purpose on prevention. We took the summer off, we replayed some favorites from listeners, and now we get to focus on prevention, something we haven't done before. We're going to have five guests in this series to talk about what they're doing in the area of prevention. And our first guest is Denise Hamburger, has a passion at, that is palpable as you listen to her. She's developed programs for teens that are spreading throughout the country and actually throughout the world. And a simple message like what's wrong with eating a cookie? So let's start there and let's dig in to this episode with Denise Hamburger.
3: Welcome Denise Hamburger to the Seasoned RD Podcast and the Prevention Series. We're so happy to have you.
0: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me today.
1: So we are going to lead you in gently with some icebreaker questions. And I have to say, these are brand new icebreakers. So we're excited to see your opinions on them. But my first one for you is salty or sweet?
0: Oh, I think I'm going to do sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah and and why sweet i love dessert and i love to i i bake dessert i'm the person that friends call on you know when we're doing a dinner party give denise dessert i've got a favorite cookbook called tartine that i like to make desserts from i don't know if you've heard of that one so i'm going to go with sweet
4: it is now on my
0: wish list <laughs> <laughs>
4: All right, I've got one for you sunrise or sunset?
0: Oh, wow. I could start singing a song from Fiddle on the Roof with that one. <laughs> I am going to say sunset because I'm sitting today with you in Sarasota, Florida. We are on the West coast of Florida and our sunsets are gorgeous. I just got down here yesterday and they are pink and blue. And we drove down just at sunset yesterday and it was a nice welcome. So definitely How beautiful. Yeah. Mm, and
3: I think that I have to say in Kansas city that the sunrises and sunsets have been spectacular lately. Yes. Like either of them. And so anyways, and then the last one for me is what, who was your favorite teacher ever as a child, as a teen, as an adult
0: and why? Hmm. So I had a teacher in high school named Catherine Kircher and she was my English teacher. And I, I ended up being an English major in college which at some point I, I, I thought I was going to be an English professor. So I, I did took another path. But she inspired a love of books and learning. And in high school, I think you're kind of figuring out another way, seeing things, your eyes are opening up, you're more of an abstract thinker. And it it, it created a love of, of literature for me.
3: Mm. Was there anything in the relationship with her? Did she... And to be a little more personal or was there anything else like that?
0: She was encouraging. So, you know how you have one person in your life that sees more in you than you see in yourself? Uh, She was very encouraging into creative writing. She had a lot of her students and I was one of Mm -hmm. them who she had enter creative writing awards, you know, creative writing contests. And I, I won a couple awards uh, with her encouragement. I never would have thought to do that otherwise. So, it, you know, you Thank have you. someone that, that sees a piece of you that you don't see yourself.
3: Yeah. And that is what I just got chills when you said that, because that's really about the relationship. And that brings us to this prevention series that we're doing. And we were so thrilled that Millie Plotkin gave us your name to talk to. So this is kind of the brainchild of some grandparents who have a, chi- a grandchild with an eating disorder. And they are like, we want to talk more about prevention because this podcast is for professionals who treat eating disorders. Like if we could all be without a job and do something way more fun. Let's let's do that. So, Denise, we want how did you get into prevention?
0: So uh, this is a really circuitous route. So I I was just telling you I was interested in being an English professor. That was one of my professions I was considering. But the other one, which I ended up doing, was I was a lawyer. So I went to law school. I became an environmental art. And I don't I don't know if I told you that when we were chatting before. But I was an environmental lawyer and I, I got to my midlife and I wanted to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. So I went back to school about 10 years ago and I was thinking of becoming, you know, I, I did flirt with that English professor professor. Idea, but it, I really thought I should be a social worker. So I went to social work school at the University of Chicago. And in a class I was taking there, I wrote a paper on my own body image. And when writing the paper, I realized that this would be a better talk because I was an environmental lawyer. I actually was a litigator. And I thought, you know, what's in here would be something everyone would like to know all women my age middle-aged women would like to know what i learned from the research and there was a ton of research that was another thing there was 50 years of research on eating disorders and about 25 years of research on prevention how you know what what can we do about this problem so i thought all women my age would like to know one everyone's got it so you know we, we all think about it and we don't know that it's we just think it's us and It's it's not our fault that it's really the media that's doing it to us. And you know, my era it was Farrah Fawcett and Charlie's Angels. But other people's eras, as it could have been Heather Locklear. For today's young people, it's Instagram, TikTok influencers that they're seeing. They're seeing an ideal up there. And then the third thing I learned was there are things that we have tools in our toolkit to to prevention or mitigating the damage of it. So. With 25 years of prevention, there are things out there that the research knows that there are ways to address it that have not been translated to tools for schools and teachers. And so I, I started going, speaking on this, and I thought, you know, this would make a better talk for middle-aged women. I started talking about it. And I had one health teacher in my audience, one, uh, you know, again, it's about eight years ago, who said, you know that's well and good for women our age and you know we've been doing whatever we've been doing forever but the young people today have it so much worse with their social media they are ex- you know seeing thousands and thousands of pictures of perfect and i've got you know air quotes around perfect looking people on on instagram and at the time there wasn't even tiktok when we had this discussion it was instagram and snapchat and so she said you know do you have anything any curriculum I could teach the kids. And I said, wow, that's a great question because there's so, so much research on this, there must be something for you and I'm going to find it for you. So I went to go look and I actually, in my, my search, I I found the body positive out in California and the body project, which is a research-based selective curriculum, which means it's made for small groups and it needs to be taught by a facilitator. And I got trained on both of these curricula and I went back and I contacted this teacher. It was, she was a local teacher in the area. And I said, you know, I've been trained on a couple of curriculum. I could come teach your class and I'm making up a curriculum from these resources again, both well-researched. And I went to go teach the class. I get into the class and she, I, I come to the door. She said, oh, by the way, Just so you know, there are four students in this class of, you know, like a normal classroom size, 24, 25, who have an eating disorder diagnosed. Well, I didn't say this, but this was a 10th grade class. And the statistics are, you know, there should be two and a half in their lifetimes, not double that amount by 10th, 14 or 15 years old. That's ridiculous. And I looked at her, I was like, wow, what's going on? And she said, yeah, I told you, it's the, the social media that the kids are consuming. Again, this was about you know seven years ago. This was before TikTok even existed. So anyway, I went from her classroom straight to the Illinois Board of Education, ISBE, Illinois State Board of Education. I, I through a connection, was able to contact their health and wellness professionals there. And the director and I met with one of the, the the women that worked at the isbe the department of education in illinois and I said you know I was just in a classroom double the amount of students are diagnosed and you know what can we do about it she said and I started giving her statistics you know, that I given my talk and she's don't even give me statistics i've got a kid in high school i've got a daughter in middle school I'm convinced. Let's just fix the problem. So she said, what you need to do is go out and talk to teachers about what they can do about it. Tell them what the problem is. Give them advice on steps that schools can take to help them and give them a free curriculum. So about seven years ago, it's about eight years ago, actually, I started a talk that did just that. And I researched. So I had the statistics. I researched what schools can do about it using papers from they've got great experts in this area. And I and then I gave them a free curriculum and I started going around regional offices of education. They, they That's what they do in Illinois for professional development for teachers. And I started talking to teachers about How to create body confident environments. So the talk was called body confident schools. And the the steps for we had five steps for what they can do to create a body confident environment for students. And that talk got so popular in Illinois. I there are 30 regional offices of education all over the state. I probably have been to 22 and some more than one time. With this talk, it was people were very interested in these are, and the, the talks were for, I call them educators, but it's really for health teachers, really any teacher in the school, but wellness professionals in the school. So that's the school social worker, the school nurse, school psychologist, and I've had administrators come. I've, I've actually spoke to groups of administrators. So during COVID, all of a sudden, the opportunity arose to be able to present on Zoom, and so I started talking to teachers all over the country on Zoom. One of the papers I used for body the the five steps to a body confidence school was a paper by Dr. Bryn Austin and, and Dr. Rebecca Poole. Bryn Austin is a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. And they had written a policy paper on it. And I had called her just to say, just so you know, I'm going all over the state of Illinois. Uh, talking to teachers, and I'm giving them your paper. I've translated it from academic speak, hopefully into, you know, real language that people can understand, because these some of these academic papers aren't accessible. And I've translated it to you, and I'm going out and telling people about it, telling teachers, spreading the word. And she said, oh, that's amazing. Do they like it? And I said, yes, they do. <laughs> they seem to like it. I get feedback from them and they're, seen, they're very interested. And she said, well, you should survey them and find if it moves the needle with what they understand about what's going on with students today, if they are more likely to teach a curriculum on this. And I said, you know what, Dr. Austin, with all due respect, you know, I got myself educated. I got myself trained. I'm on the road delivering a talk, delivering your paper. I don't know how to survey them. I don't know even how to do that. She goes, okay, I'll do it for you. So she went and she surveyed 200 of my participants before pre and post tests, which is how they do it. And actually ended up giving us a report because it did move the dial on what teachers understood about the, the issue and what they understood about mostly weight stigma. That was one of the biggest things that moved the dial on. And it definitely moved the dial on their intent to teach a body image curriculum.
4: That's absolutely amazing. And I just want to stop and pause right here and reflect a little bit because I love your story that you had this, this all came straight from passion, right? Like this wasn't anything that someone forced on you or that you thought, oh, this would make me money or like there was no external drive there. It was all internal. And I absolutely love how the passion for teaching has been weaved in through this. So even though you didn't go down that original path, look at you now. You're doing it. Just It was born inside of you. And so we are so lucky to have somebody with that kind of passion and drive and personality to go out there and get it done. That is amazing. Thank Um, you, Yeah. And I want to make sure we have some time to talk about your current project, Be Real USA. And do you want to explain what that is and how people can access it?
0: Oh, yes, I do. So along the the process of doing this, so about 2019, I thought... uh, I I need to do some fundraising around what I'm doing. This is a passion project for me. I wasn't making any money on it, as you say. And my incentive was really just to provide something, the the, the tool, the the resources or the, the research existed and the tools didn't exist. So I formed a nonprofit called Be Real USA with a mission to provide resources to schools on body image around the country. So resources to schools and parents, I'd say the adults in children's lives to provide body confident environments for for students. So formed a nonprofit in about 2009 and uh, sorry, 2019. And we fundraise to be able to provide these resources for graphic design costs, for web hosting costs. And so that's where the, the nonprofit came into being. And your other question was. Oh, I'm curious,
4: how can we access it or how, ah, how yeah. can we support and spread this mission? Yes.
0: Thank you. So our website, berealusa.org, has information on all of our programs. So I just described body confidence schools. This is the talk that we give to adults in students' lives. And I just want to say we we started an ambassador program because I've been doing this for about eight years. I Try to create a template for other people to be able to go out and spread the boots on the ground. Be able to do the type of work I was doing with the promise that I will update my talks every time I gave a talk, and I've given over a hundred of them now. I would make it better. I got a good question, or the the research on this has been updated, or there's been a book published, or the way we use the word healthy has changed, and. The ambassador program was created to provide a template for other people to go out and give research, evidence-based, updated information to the adults in in students' lives on this topic. So if there's a new book by Aubrey Gordon or Virginia Sol Smith or Reagan Chastain comes out with another way to to look at this issue, we're going to read that and, and synthesize it and put it in our material. So uh, this ambassador program, which you would see on my website, creates an opportunity for other people to come in and access one-hour presentations, half-day presentations for, for educators. We've got a parent talk. And then I've got about 15 other documents around that that have been created, advertising templates, letters to schools. When we speak, we give postcards to parents. Everything that you could think of, I've got a frequently asked questions sheet that these are all the questions I've been getting and speaking a hundred times. I'm rarely surprised. I will be surprised, but, uh, the, you know, usually we get the same three questions in specific but you know it, it, usually about the t- 10 questions i get and we've given answers to them based on Aubrey Gordon and Virginia Soul Smith and Reagan Chestaine What is
4: what are those most common questions Yeah i'm curious
0: oh. besides yeah. healthy like how do we use yeah. the word healthy So it's it's th- th- what we do in the talk is we provide shifts that people need to make from our current culture because our current culture isn't working right now. Our current culture is causing the problems that students are, uh, young people are experiencing around their body image. And so what do we need to shift? So the first thing we do in body confidence schools is show the adults and students' lives where their thinking or behavior could use shifting from our current culture. So we talked to them about the three shifts are seeing your body as an instrument, not an ornament, lots of research behind both of those ideas about seeing self-objectification as seeing your body as, as an ornament, and then a lot of ideas around seeing your body as an instrument, functionality. We know that functionality is helpful around body image. So that's one of the three shifts. And then the the second shift is weight-neutral self-care. It's not using body measurements as a proxy for taking care of yourself, but instead teaching healthy self-care behaviors. So that's a shift from, from talking about weight or BMI or focusing on body size, and then we shift to talking about how to take care of your body how to move your body for your own benefit, how to fuel your body well for your day, how to become aware of your eating. And then we have a third shift, which is accepting all body sizes and not talking about appearance so much that bodies come in all shapes and sizes and are healthy in all shapes and sizes. So those are the three shifts. The questions that we get around those have to do with, well, things like, are you promoting obesity by saying it's okay to be any body size? So that's one of the the main questions we get. Another question that we get is, and the answer to that is, of course, we're not promoting anything around body size. We're just providing an environment for people to feel okay with themselves, to be able to want to take on self-care behaviors. So uh, so that's really what we're doing. And we want all people to be able to feel confident in themselves in any shape and size. So that's really where, where we're I love coming. I that at. answer. And so the, the other questions we get are, isn't really using body size as a proxy for health. So th- there's a belief out there that we know something about your health by looking at your body size, which isn't true. So we really do talk about the fact that you can be healthy at any shape and size. So, so we we spend time debunking that. And then the the oh, and I think probably the most common question is 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 seeing body size as a reflection of self-care behaviors that 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 body size means if, it, if you're a certain body size, it means that you are lazy or undisciplined. Anybody would be thin if they worked hard enough or exercised enough, and that it's really within your control. And that's kind of like a calories in calories out idea. So that's a ubiquitous idea in our culture is that we have control of our body size. And that's probably the number Mm -hmm. one question I get.
2: We are going to take a quick break to talk about the inspiration for this prevention series. This podcast is for professionals who work with eating disorders. And many of us say that we wish we could be out of a job. If we could prevent eating disorders, that would be way more fun than the work we do today and trying to help save lives and, and help people pick up the pieces of some of this devastation. So this is sponsored by... Children's Mercy Eating Disorders Program in Kansas City although Children's Mercy Eating Disorders Center treats children and teens with eating disorders along with their families they saw this as a po- this podcast as a way to spread important information about prevention like i said about finding a different career if eating disorders vanished they were able to sponsor 5 episodes due to a generous donation from a couple whose granddaughter was treated for an eating disorder at Children's Mercy and who are particularly passionate about prevention to save other teens and families the pain their own family has experienced. Thank you so much to the anonymous donors and thank you to Children's Mercy for bringing this series to us as professionals.
4: I think this is amazing because it's, it's essentially what we are attempting to do in treatment too, but you have taken it on the flip side to get them in that positive spot before the eating disorder develops. I think that
3: self-care and movement before we all got on, Abby and I were having a conversation about what's what we call ideal body weight. And as an eating disorders professional, I don't use that and haven't used it for years, but that's what dietitians are taught in school. And, and she was talking about how she tuned into a client who that bothered them, you know, using that term. You mentioned, Denise, healthy. You know, the word healthy, healthy, unhealthy, clean eating, dirty eating, I don't know what the opposite yeah. of clean eating is, whatever. And so with good food, bad food, it's like junk food. I, I don't know, there's so many terms that we have to learn the language for ourselves and what really works that you, I have so many stars written on my paper mm-hmm that I just, one of them is weight stigma.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And the, and that
3: everything. dietetic, yeah, dietetic students are going to have a toolkit that starts, I think next year, like in January of 2024, we're wrapping it up as a national group. It's called a weight inclusive toolkit yes. for the professors and the third year dietetic students to learn what weight inclusivity means. And you use the term weight neutral. And so, what is that? You know, do we have to do a target weight based on the dreaded Hamley formula, which is 500 pounds for five feet for women, and then every inch above that is five pounds? Our Mm -hmm. clients measure themselves against that constantly.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I'm in the profession is I used to do that when I was younger as well. So, I, you know, so. I think what we're doing and the movement around what Be Real is doing, and you know, I haven't even talked about the curriculum that we're doing, is really about seeing through research where what we've been doing is actually causing the problem. So we know 10 years after, 20 years after they've been doing food journals in school, that this is problematic behavior and contributes to body dissatisfaction and eating disorders. We know this concept of what you just mentioned, ideal weight, you know, contributes, puts pressure on people and contributes to body dissatisfaction, which can lead to eating disorders. So we know this from the research now, and that is what we're trying to address where we can change our behavior based on what we know causes harm in our diet culture to produce more body-confident environments. So we know calling food good and bad isn't good because it's a very short leap from saying the food is bad to I'm bad for eating it. And that is what is happening. Having your self-esteem take a hit for eating a cookie. And so what we do is we talk to teachers and parents about where they can improve the way they talk about things and and have another way of seeing things.
4: I want to ask a, a bit of a loaded question here, but you, given your history of being a litigator along with your identification of like you said 25 plus years of research, what do you think that barrier is? Why is it that you're someone is just now coming around and getting that research out into the
0: public? Where do you think we went wrong? You know, that's a great question. And I think that I'm not even sure we've done anything wrong. I think that the world of academics studies the problem, and it's not necessarily their job to fix it. So while the academics have been giving papers to each other at, at conferences on these topics, there haven't necessarily been tools created that get out into the world. And it's not to say that there haven't been. There there are lots of professors that have created tools. But to get something out into the public to get it out to all schools takes a lot of drive, initiative, grant funding and it takes a lot of money to get something out there that that is for everyone to use. And you know, many people who are studying this don't have the grant funding they're they've got other projects i do think and i've said this when i've partnered with academics it's my job as a stakeholder who's interested in this to create the product we need to partner with academics and stakeholders and teachers lots of people down the line to get these tools out into the public so i don't necessarily think we've done anything wrong i think what we in a perfect world, we need more partnerships with people who know how to pass the baton and who's the next person to take the baton. What I've noticed is, so I feel like the researchers have done their job. They have created the research on this topic. I feel like I'm grabbing the baton from them and I'm creating the tool and I'm working with ambassadors, people in different states. I'm working with Health and Human Services in the state of Minnesota, and I feel like I'm passing the baton to them. I'm working with phenomenal partners there. I've got ambassadors on their statewide health initiative improvement partnership project from Health and Human Services in Minnesota, and they're bringing the curriculum that we've created to their schools and then to the teacher. So I feel like I'm my ambassadors is the next next baton. I, I have a harder question than Dr. Voss's
3: question. How do we how do we clone you, Denise? <laughs> <laughs> because here I'm I made myself a note. Um, it is problematic to continue in the way that we are. We have professionals who claim that they're eating disorder professionals who are currently out internationally talking about how obesity treatment and focusing on weight does not cause eating disorders. And it, it, it I just have to say, I, I mean, I'm not a researcher. And here I am talking about the emotions that come up when that happens. If you put me against anyone in a debate, I'm going to lose because I can't stand my own ground. But I can feel my blood boil when I hear these comments.
0: Yeah. There are other schools of thought on so many issues in the world today and I just think that we just have to realize there are people out there. I've seen oh, quote obesity researchers talk about the the topic and I disagree with everything they say from what I've read. So I just feel like there are will be people who disagree with you in life and we just need to do the good work. And go on the good path and do what we're doing because I believe in this wholeheartedly. I've seen it work. We've taken this curriculum, I haven't even talked much about body kind, into schools and done research with the University of of UNC Charlotte. University of North Carolina, and we've surveyed students and watched them react to what we're bringing to them. So not only is this research-based and pieces of the work that we're providing in the curriculum are evidence-based, but they work. And so we've we've surveyed about 500 students before and after with the University of North Carolina in two pilot trials, and we've seen so many good results, more than we ever expected on how this does move the dial on people's own awareness of their thinking and and how to manage their thinking around uh, food, body, and eating and and create more empathetic environments within their own world.
4: And I think this all brings up an an excellent point and something I want to make sure we touch on. We'll definitely link all of your stuff down into the show notes so that people can access that. I'm wondering, you know, with the different opinions that are out there and the different opinions within the treatment of eating disorders, what advice or what could someone do if I was out there and said, I'm a nutritionist, I'm brand new, I've been taught something that's very different than what you're saying. Like, what's the one thing that you can tell me that might give me some passion or some hope to go down this road to explore more or the one thing that like you wish... I
0: knew. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would point to other people's work on the topic and to just educate yourself. And I think that I would say, you know, open it up to Christy Harrison, who talks on wellness, and she's a uh, dietitian, uh, nutritionist, and an eating disorder dietitian, nutritionist. Read about health at every size. These are the topics in the world that I'm living in. That that we we look to read Aubrey Gordon's book, 19 Myths About, I don't know what the 19 Myths About Fat People, I'm not sure of the whole title, but she takes a lot of these myths and things that we see in our culture and goes through them one by one and and provides a ton of research. It's an excellent book. She's got a great podcast, Maintenance Phase. So I would just say, open yourself up to another way of thinking. When I go to speak to teachers. And most of my audiences are educators, teachers who are out there working with kids. I was just speaking to 25 of them on Tuesday at the Minnesota SHAPE Conference. And we had a small group and I I talked to them and, you know, they live in diet culture as we all do. And the, the one thing I would say is we know what we're doing today isn't working. So could you open your mind up to trying something else. That's all I ask. Think about it from another perspective. Read uh, an, an article on it from another perspective. We know what we're doing doesn't work. We know that the body dissatisfaction in teens is at about 75, 77%. Most children are unhappy with their appearance, the way they look, their bodies. We know this. That's that's what we've researched. We know that. There are certain things we're doing that are causing problems. So maybe be open to another way of doing it. I, I, the one thing I always say to teachers, don't call food good and bad anymore. I used to too. I used to say to my kids, you know, this would you like? What would you like for breakfast? We've got some junky cereal here. And I say, I won't do that for my grandchildren because we know the research has found that it is a short leap from the food is bad or junky to I'm a bad person for eating it. We know this. So could you try to do something different? Could you call it something else? And and the healthy, non-healthy is a good and bad dichotomy too. So could you say nutritious food and the world of intuitive eating calls it nutritious and play food? So- Something that doesn't have a judgmental ring to it. Just be aware of the dichotomy when you're talking. And I get a lot of pushback from teachers, from educators saying, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I really haven't seen any problems from it. You know, you don't like food journals. Food journals uh, can create obsession, but I haven't really seen it. And it works for a lot of people. And I'm just saying, listen, we know what we're doing doesn't work. Why don't you try something different?
1: As a newer dietitian, it has frequently felt like, okay, well, I just have to deal with it. Like I, uh, clean eating is a thing now Well, I'm going to have to deal with this. I'm going to have to shift people's perspectives. I'm going to have to help clients who feel like I, I need to eat so clean, kind of unravel all of that. And it's always just felt like, you have to deal with it. Like it's going to happen and you just, you need to work on fixing it. But there has never been, well, what can we do to just, just to stop it? Like what if we never started referring to food as clean food? But it does, it does make a difference and it doesn't need to be these trips that you're taking for prevention. It doesn't mean that someone needs to go from one extreme to the other. But the small things that they can change in their verbiage, really does make a difference. And the, the individuals now who, you know, start these movements of clean eating and good and bad, it's, you almost can't blame that. It's just been weaved into our culture. It's like, how should we know any better? But if we can start with the children and their parents and making shifts there, then by the time they're old enough to Think of creating something like clean eating. They they wouldn't, you know. They just know better at that point. So it's just refreshing, and like it, it feels like you can breathe a little bit when you don't just have to lay back and take it and fix fix whatever it is that the wellness culture is messing up.
0: Yeah, I think you said it really well. I think that it's nobody's fault, and we've all been subject to so much information on food, body, and eating. You know that. It's it's confusing and it's no you know this is this is a problem that has grown organically and there isn't a quick fix and I feel like the work we're doing is going shifting people's perspective person by person.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just had a patient come through whose mom has been on and off of various diets and they were doing the Weight Watchers diet. Mom continues to to count points, yeah, um, for the kid and plate out their food. And the kid's perception is, I'm not on a diet. Uh, she really doesn't view that as a as a diet or restrictive eating. That's just normal for her to have right. a, a, as a teenager have your parent plate your food and count your points so you don't overeat. That's where so- we've gotten to.
0: That is that is part of the problem in the culture. And one of the things we do in our talk is talk about what is a diet. It's any restriction of food in order to make your body smaller. And you know, you can say many things. It's dieting isn't cool in today's culture. Clean eating is a little cool, as you say, Abby. Or, you know, there's there there's been a shift away from the word diet, Weight Watchers rebranded as WW. Wellness, yeah, wellness. twins. Yeah, yeah. and it's trying to, so the word wellness gets substituted in for diet, and clean eating gets substituted in for diet. But if you look at the intent, if the intent is to reduce your intake in order to shape your body, you're on a diet. If any mm-hmm. program is celebrating weight loss, it's a diet.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and yes. know that- 95% so, so we take them through that whole 95% of diets fail. Yeah, So we take them through the whole discussion in, in, in the, in the body confidence schools presentation. Yeah.
3: We have so much to put in the show notes and I'm going to, I appreciate again, Abby, your question. She always has that, that newer perspective, right? How should we know any better? We shouldn't like we're taught these things. So we, this is what prevention is all about You mentioned most children are dissatisfied with their body. This Mm -hmm. is a prevention series. And I think Dr. Voss already asked kind of what we would use for our wrap-up question. This time went so fast, Denise. (laughs) No, this is good, but I want to repeat it. I want to repeat Denise's answer, which is, could you open your mind to trying something new? you know, it's baked into all of culture. You have listed, Denise, so many of the names of other people that we are approaching in this prevention series. And so hopefully we can get them on. Yours is going to kick off hopefully December 1st, and we'll have so much in the show notes. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. I just want to jump in. I want to be your clone. I want to jump in and help you so much. I don't have it I have the capacity or the bandwidth, but man, I'm so grateful for you.
0: Oh, you're so kind. And I've said to my husband all the time, you know, I've been doing this work and I—it it is a nonprofit. I don't get paid. You know, I raise funds to do what we do, but I see that it works. I see the I'm in schools and I see when students report that you know we could create a better environment around food body and eating by being more accepting of each other. The curriculum that we have created called BodyCon. We haven't even really talked about that much. We didn't but, talk
3: about that. I know. I highlighted but, that.
0: I'm like, oh my God. But what, what it does is it shows students 24 body stories of other People's ways into what we call body dissatisfaction from different races, ethnicities, gender identities, sexualities, abilities, and body sizes. So we 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 have stories, real stories from people uh, of their ways into what they don't like about their bodies and how that can be different for different people. And Understanding others' experiences does create a more empathetic culture. So it allows students to see their own experiences maybe mirrored where they, that wasn't taught before. But it really does create a more empathetic environment when you realize that what people are struggling with and understand that everybody's got this. And you let down your guard a little bit and stop talking about yeah, appearance Let's
3: be in it together. So we're going to make sure to put the body kind in our show notes. Denise Hamburger, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank, thank you.
2: you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you want to connect with me for all things eating disorders and disordered eating from an RD, registered dietitian perspective, there are three ways to do that. One is my membership, and actually, Two of those ways are my membership. There's a tier one and a tier two, but it's the membership is for anyone, not only professionals, anyone who wants to join the conversation about medical, nutrition, therapy perspectives floating through my brain, things that I've learned through the podcast, things that I've learned in my three plus decades of work with all ages. And the membership has monthly content with the two tiers, tier one is the content and a text community where we can share ideas. And tier two is once per month with a live coffee talk where you can just pop in and say hi, or you can be a fly on the wall and add, um, just listen to some ideas related to that month's theme. And then finally for professionals, I offer small consult groups that run from January to June and July to December, usually therapists and RDs, but I would love to have a medical provider and I offer individual consultation information on all this is in the show notes.